You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, Glenn, I've got some trivia. It's kind of a bunch of things all compiled into one, but in essence, it's called a Bacon-Erdos number. Do you, have you ever heard of a Bacon-Erdos number? As in Sir Francis Bacon? Nope, as in 80s heartthrob Kevin Bacon. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I have not heard of this, so, wow, please okay. continue. Sir. So, um, you've heard of the Six Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon? Yes. Yes? Okay. Yes. And, and the awful Will Smith movie. <laughs> yes. And you're familiar that I, before getting into forensics, made my own zombie movie, correct? I am familiar with that. Life Room. Life Room, yes, very good. Well, turns out... Um, you can connect me to Kevin Bacon with a Bacon number of three. Awesome. Um, because I was in Life Room uh, with a another kind of extra named Kevin Cormier, who was mm-hmm. in a movie called Middlemen, probably as another extra with Kevin Pollock, who obviously mm-hmm. starred in A Few Good Men with yeah. Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Now, what you may not uh, be familiar with is uh, a man named Paul Erdos. Um, Paul Erdos was a Hungarian mathematician. Any bring any bells? No. Um, he was. Oh a, wait, wait, wait. Let me let me consult famous Hungarian mathematicians I have hanging on my wall. <laughs> oh no, no, I'm I'm not familiar with him. He was a fairly eccentric mathematician, but uh, is regarded as one of the most prolific writers of mathematic papers, comparable only with Euler himself. Or Euler for the you know non mathematicians out there. Um, well, in the mathematics community, uh, Erdos is like the is like Kevin Bacon is to movies. You try to you know collaborate with people so that your paper is written with people who wrote papers as co writers with uh, with Paul Erdos. Got it. So I that got me thinking. A couple years ago now, um, I published, uh, I, I'm going to count it, some people may not count it, but a, a uh, <laughs> um, kind of a one-sheet paper with members of the Probability Modeling Committee with the IAI, mm-hmm. including Cedric Newman, mm-hmm. uh, who co-authored a paper with Ian Evett, mm-hmm. who co-authored a paper with someone named Adrian Smith, who oh, co-authored yeah. with Samuel James Taylor, who co-authored a paper with Paul Erdos, giving me an Erdos number of five, so a combined Bacon-Erdos number of eight. That is awesome. You lost me at Taylor. I don't know who Taylor is, um, but obviously must have been uh, a famous mathematician back in the day. That is really cool, Eric. So um, I, I'm I'm proud to be someone who, you know getting into the single digits for both being in movies and writing papers, um, I, 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 you know, there's, there's, it's got to be a, a relatively small uh, a group of people, but um, um, that's my little factoid to share for today is the Bacon Erdos number, and it's a thing because it's on Wikipedia. So there you go. <laughs> well, my Erdos number would also be five, and co-authored paper with Cedric. 
right? Yeah, um, and I have no idea what my bacon number is. <laughs> Never thought to, to look it up. Well, yeah, you'd have to figure out what um, what you know what movies that you've you've been extras in. Um, right. So um, uh, you were just on a trip recently. I was too. Where where did you go? Because I, I think I can beat you. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I went to Central Florida for class. To right. Teach. And did it go well? Oh yeah, they were a great group of students. Very energetic, very enthused, very engaged. Uh, actually, really, really good group. I had a great time teaching, and uh, good, good, good weather, and good to get away. Awesome. Well, I uh, just um, late last month uh, turned forty. Mm. So, yep, um, I'm I'm in that age. I've been telling people. People keep asking, "How do you feel? You know, you, you're freaking out." And honestly, it's I the 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 more kind of cringy thing is that later this year in the fall, my oldest turns eighteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that is somehow a weirder thing for me. But um, in, in any case, um, my wife uh, has been planning a vacation for us for a few months now, and um, uh, so it was a surprise. So I finally find out when we get to the airport where we're going. Um, and, uh, we spent about five days in Waikiki. Oh, wow. So that was, uh, a fantastic vacation and, um, um, not technically my first, uh, time to Hawaii. Um, my parents took me when I was about four months old. Um, so I don't really remember a whole bunch. Uh, my wife was kind enough to point out that my first trip to Hawaii back in the 70s was closer in time to the Pearl Harbor bombing than present day. Um, (laughs) But um, no, we had a great time. Um, Had lots of uh, Mai Tais and Ahi Pokey and um, got to go to this fantastic uh, udon noodle place. It's like, you know, top 10 restaurants in the country. Um, and, um, and, And try the 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 most popular and well revered Hawaiian delicacy. Any, any thoughts? Well, I, I mean, is this a joke, like, or something real, like the shaved ice thing? Well, shaved ice is very popular. We missed that, but even but even more popular than shaved ice for the locals is uh, spam masubi. Oh yes, I've heard about this—the spam rule. Yes, which is basically like yeah, a little bed of sticky rice with a piece of, sp- of fried spam placed atop it, and then the whole thing wrapped up like with a little bow of seaweed, um, right. uh, make a little hand roll kind of thing. And um, okay, <laughs> oh, you did it. Yep, <laughs> tastes like fried spam on a bunch of rice. But uh, okay, um, mm. and we were told repeatedly that the 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 highest class spam masubi that you can get is sold at Seven Elevens. Um, so <laughs> excellent. Um, and where did you stay? Which hotel? The Outrigger Reef uh, in Waikiki. Um, okay. So it's right next to uh, the little like military yep. hotel base that's that's there. Um, went out um, snorkeling with the dolphins and got to see the uh, the Arizona in Pearl Harbor. And uh, just had a great time. It was just uh, perfect weather the whole time uh, and great food. And hopefully it doesn't take another 40 years to go back. Well, you do have me beat. However, 
now I might have to try to one-up you. Oh, jeez. Uh, you don't know this, but I'm going to Waikiki in about three weeks. <laughs> really? Yeah, um, I'm going to teach a class there. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, I know you, I realized you didn't know that, but... Right, yeah, right. Um, well, I didn't even know where I was going until we got to the airport that day, so... Right. Um, That's why I was asking you about... Uh, I'll have to get some info offline from you about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when the, the race is over, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll give you the, the places to go. Because there was one place that I, I didn't realize they closed early on Sunday, so I missed it, um, called Ahi Assassins. And mm. their motto is... Uh, we catch it, we kill it, we fillet it, we serve it. If we don't catch fish that day, we're just closed. Oh, uh, like so, it. Uh, very fresh um, uh, seafood. That um, fantastic. Um, that I all love to hear. Oh, and malasadas, um, Portuguese donuts. Oh yes, yes, yes. Holy crap! These things are <laughs> cool. All right. Well, um, we have. Hopefully, uh, uh, you know some articles to talk about here. Uh, let's jump right in. The first one is from the January edition of um, Journal Forensic Identification. Lay understanding of quote identification: How jurors interpret forensic identification testimony, um, and it's by uh, Henry Swafford and uh, Jeff Jessica Sino. And the overall summary of this is um, uh, they did a bit of research asking potential jurors uh, what what their thoughts were uh, about uh, the word identification uh, and what uh, what that word mean to them. Um, so again, we've got some other articles to get to, so I'm going to jump ahead. The first big part of the article, I'll come back to a little bit here in, in a minute, talks about kind of some of the recent history of identification, individualization, um, some of the the phrasing that's come out from the Army Crime Lab, obviously with, with Henry Swafford being from there. Uh, but first I want to go to the actual research portion that they did, which was using a um, uh, an online survey company called 1Q. Uh, they asked these, uh, these two survey questions. So there's survey one and survey two. Uh, the first survey one, the question is, or the, the first part the statement is, uh, a fingerprint is found at a crime scene. At trial, the expert reports, quote, the fingerprint from the crime scene has been identified to the fingerprints of the suspect, uh, close quote. As a jury member, which of the following is your interpretation of the expert's findings? A, the suspect is the source of the fingerprint. No other individual is the source. Or B, the suspect is the most likely source of the fingerprint, but another individual could be the source. Uh, and then survey two is a uh, fingerprint is found at a crime scene. At trial, the expert reports, quote, the fingerprint has been identified, close quote. As a jury member, what does the term identification mean to you? A, the fingerprint is linked to one individual, all others excluded. Or B, the fingerprint is linked to one individual, possible but unlikely to be another individual. Overall, uh, results of the study, uh, 71% of the potential jurors uh, in this study with, you know, posed with those questions interpreted the expert testimony containing the word identification to imply a single source attribution, quote, to the exclusion of all others. Um, so that is, is the main 
thrust of the uh, research part portion of it. Uh, and then uh, Henry goes on, uh, Henry and Jessica go on to uh, discuss further uh, implications going from there. Um, so uh, what, at least one of the first thing, um, uh, just because this, this came up first, just in me summarizing it, the actual questions posed uh, and, and that method of, of polling potential jurors. Uh, Glenn, uh, kind of initial thoughts on these questions um, before we go into other implications and other portions of the paper? Uh, well, are you asking me what do I think about the the format of the questions or the results coming from the questions? Um, well, for, first, the, the, the format. Um, like, uh, past, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, a paper where we thought that the, the format of the question mm-hmm. uh, led to, uh, you know, had some bias associated with it. That was the centering bias where, you know, the examiners were like, I don't know, I'll just pick kind of the number in the middle because yeah. that seems fine. Yeah. Um, any, any, I mean, obviously we don't have that issue here, but any other issues uh, yeah. that you would have with the questions here? Well, then I'm going to combine both answers to the question. In, okay. in other words, I'm going to answer the, a different question than you asked, <laughs> but, but, but not. When we asked, when, when Cedric and I did the survey live with the IAI, and we asked very similar questions, we gave them probabilistic fingerprint evidence, and we gave them a, a traditional fingerprint identification, and we asked 11 potential mock jurors, no fingerprint background, whatever, we asked them, you know, if they thought it was basically from this person and really no one else, that it's most likely from this person, but there's a small chance, but unlikely is someone else. Um, it's probably someone else's print. I don't know. Fingerprint is junk science. It could be anyone. I don't, you know, we, we gave them a bunch of different options. They, right. only, they only chose two, and I think it was nine chose the suspect is the source of the fingerprint and not really anyone else. And two out of the 11 chose... It's most likely the source of the fingerprint, but I, I would consider someone else could be the, uh, possible, but probably unlikely. So in other words, pretty similar. Uh, even though we gave other options, they didn't choose those other options. They landed on these two. So these two. My, my first thought is these are actually the right questions to ask because if you had given other choices, I don't know that they would have been necessarily valid considering our mock jurors went through a whole mock trial. This is just right. two sanitized questions in a very short survey format, and and I don't know that you would get much out of by asking additional questions. And and the numbers felt right. Most people seem to believe, if you will, or accept the fingerprint examiner's assertion that th- this person is the source. And then even when you strongly assert this person's a source, you're going to have a handful of people that are the skeptics in your, your lay people that go, no, I don't know if I buy that so much. It's not like it's DNA. Uh, there's a chance it could be someone else's, but it's probably his print. I'll wait and hear what the other evidence is in the case. Um, so for, for me, I had, I had two main issues with how the, the study was set up uh, and how the questions were posed to the, the potential jurors. Uh, the first being that I, I don't I don't see like a control group like a right um, w- yep when when um, when this group of people is asked uh, a similar kind of question about you know something maybe not related to fingerprint evidence like um, 
you know, say a, you know, a, a body is found and the medical examiner comes in and says that uh, the, that strangulation yeah. is the cause of death. Uh, does this mean that um, this is the cause of death and excluding all other causes of death? Uh, or is this the likely cause of death, but it, it's unlikely but possible to be a different cause? Um, you know, is is this just when an expert goes in the court, expresses their opinion, and um, jurors hear that and usually just accept it? Is it because jurors just accept the opinion of an expert mm-hmm. in court, or is it specifically because the word identification in latent prints has right. extra meaning to it, which is you know what seems to be what the authors are trying to uh, to state is whether or not this term has extra meaning uh, assigned to it, um, maybe even extra than what uh, other expert testimony would have. Yep, you 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 totally hit the my my. My big uh, flaw with that is the lack of a control group because that was our big flaw in our mock trial that we did. We didn't have a control mock trial where you could compare, you know, some sort of apples to apples. So uh, I don't know that this study suffers dramatically from that, but it just it makes you look at the results with a, a skeptical eye. Uh, and then the second thing I wanted to bring up is is that. Um, uh, he didn't ask about the the alternative. Um, so from this, he seems to later on in the paper Ooh. suggest that this is a unacceptable way to testify and offers another option in how to present testimony to the experts, mm-hmm. but doesn't present that alternative to the potential jurors because they may just hear what he has to say on uh, with his alternative phrasing and come to the exact same conclusions here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. I frankly, I, I missed that. That, that is actually a, a really good point. Because if, if they're going to also say 71% of the time that uh, this, this, when saying this association has occurred, it's X times more likely and still you know, the examiner, or the, the sorry, the jurors uh, interpret it as as being just the single source. Then, uh, yeah, absolutely, you know the the art the art overall uh, you know suffers from that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, less so, I would question the the phrasing uh, of things. And I understand though that it would have to be a much larger study to try to sift through um, you know a best phrasing uh, of things. But overall, like we've discussed before, I, I think that there isn't going to be a best phrasing. That, like what you discussed last summer with that uh, that panel of the different you know, mock yeah. juries, different people are going to hear different ways of saying it, and and uh, on a jury, and they're each going to latch onto a different way of hearing it uh, as as what they prefer or what they expect or yeah. you know whatever it's it's going to be end up being best to present a categorical decision with maybe an analogy and with some numbers and like the, just the whole thing presenting it in these different ways is as your best chance of reaching most members of the jury to uh, convince, but to present it in the way that their brain wants to receive that information. Yep. I, that, that's a fair, fair point. 
right. So in the, uh, their discussion here of um, uh, of these terms, identification to the exclusion of all others, the, they they make this point that I, I strongly disagree with. Uh, and I'll read a little quote here. Uh, by contemporaneously discouraging the language, quote, to the exclusion of all others, while encouraging the language, quote, the two impressions originated from the same source, forensic policymakers facilitate ambiguity and stifle the progress of forensic reporting. So for me, I don't have a logical disconnect between these two terms. Saying that the two impressions originated from the same source is my expert opinion, uh, the conclusion that I reach and, and I report and testify to. If we want to get into it, we can go into the the limit. Absolutely, get into the limitations of um, of that uh, that wording. However, to suggest that the the phrase originated from the same source always implies to the exclusion of all others is just incorrect. Uh, in in when when I say originate from the same source, I absolutely do not mean to the exclusion of all others. Um, there there seems it seems to be making the same mistake that those who hold on to that phrase, who want to keep that to the exclusion of all others phrase, are making, is that you when you originate say that two originated from the same source, you must also mean that you're excluding all others um, through logic, and they both make this this kind of logical argument, but the Origination from the same source is simply a, a a decision, an opinion of the expert, and they can make that uh, decision and express that professional expert opinion without having to go to the uh, extreme of uh, making the incorrect assertion that any other area of friction ridge skin that's compared from all other people throughout all time are always going to be able to be distinguished from this latent print, excluded from this latent print, um, and that it's impossible that another area of friction ridge skin can't, in a distorted way, look similar enough that it might not fool some examiner. I'm really firm on this, and I don't understand why... It seems like both extremes of this discussion are insisting that these have to be linked together. Glenn? Well, I, I actually thought you were going to take a slightly different turn there. I was expecting what we've discussed before is that, by definition, an exclusion is a result of a comparison. Yes, there is that a conclusion too. that, therefore, it cannot be an exclusion to all others because a comparison did not happen. It is the result, the resulting conclusion. I, I actually thought you were just going with that. Um, so I, at the very end, I was you, know, you did a quick little one eighty on me, uh, <laughs> just more of a five. It wasn't a one, a complete one eighty. Maybe a, that's yeah, true. fifteen. That's true. Okay, that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah I, uh, I mean, this is this is the difficulty is that according uh, their their point in the paper is it doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> uh, you might not mean it that way, but the juror is going to hear it something else. I mean, I, I think this is Henry's point is whatever your thoughts on it, this has to be made clear to jurors because they don't make a distinction. Um, can, can we make a distinction? This is this philosophical philosophical debate that you and I have had over and over and over. 
Uh, I don't have a don't have a great answer here because ultimately, of course, we do believe it to be the source. We don't think it's going to be someone else. Absolutely. But it comes down to is that a de facto? Well, it is the sole source person. If if you take the exclusion to all others off the table because a comparison wasn't done to them, are you still really saying this is Michelle Triplett's argument? Are, aren't you still really saying to the exclusion of all others by saying identification sole source? Uh, yeah, I I, I I I don't have an answer here. I don't know that we can articulate it. I get Henry's point that. Maybe it doesn't matter what we think. It just really matters what jurors understand. True. And I get that. And I read that through and I see that throughout the entire article. That is the point. Um, again, I would go back to, well, then is is the alternative any better? Do the jurors understand you know, uh, that um, any better than they understand this current decision? Um and I'd be doubtful on that because it's a more complicated you know, way of mm-hmm. stating it. Um, but also, wh- what's wrong with with the jurors uh, hearing my opinion and and taking that as as that clear? Is that limiting the pathologist from testifying? You know, any other expert testimony on uh, digital forensics or time of death uh or yeah uh, is is maybe i maybe i want to get in line and and (laughs) be like you know what let's let's let the courts um and the other fields uh that also testify to their opinion you know go first in kind of coming up with some sort of convoluted wording to to soften Mm -hmm. their their uh, their opinion um in more statistical terms for the juries Uh, and then we'll get along if that's what the the courts expect us to do i just don't see that happening i just don't see that as um as any other scientific uh, methodology moving in that direction uh, of when testifying in court, you say something um, in in this you know alternative way. Yeah, I mean, putting putting that aside for a moment, and let's just assume that they're just as quote unquote bad as we are. Um, and I'm not going to worry about fixing them. Maybe the thing is, if, fine. If if you're going to offer the opinion, I perhaps the counter argument to this is. Okay, you can have the opinion, but please put the appropriate limitations on it. Talk about okay. errors. Talk about error rates, the potential for error. Sometimes we're mistaken. Uh, dealing with APHIS is a more complex situation where more errors can occur. I mean, as long as you maybe put it in the proper limitations of, well, this is my opinion, but then these are the problems sometimes with this opinion, then then maybe that's the appropriate balance. I, I that's I think that's where my heart is at, is that I, I also like the opinion, but I also want I, I want it elicited, and I don't necessarily want to have to wait for the prosecutor or defense to elicit those questions. Right. But I, I do feel that we're in a uh, we're in a spot right now where we almost kinda have to have prosecution does not want to open that door if they don't have to, and if defense <laughs> right. doesn't know any better you know, and if you just throw it out there, which is what PCAST says you have to do, you're sp- you are supposed to offer that with your testimony. I I might know some prosecutors that would be fairly yes. upset about that. 
I, I just don't think that there is, is really good guidance on whose responsibility that is to bring up. I mean, I think there are different views on whose responsibility because ultimately, again, we're supposed to be responsible for our own testimony, except we're not because we don't we're not in control of the information that's flowing to the jury. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, again, I'm I'm not surprised like you uh, about the results. Um, I'd be curious to see, you know, what this is compared to a control group. I'd be interested to see what this is compared to the alternative that's that's uh, being proposed. I'd be interested to see what the results would be if the wording was, uh, if things were worded differently. <laughs> because... Eric. Why don't you do your own study? Oh well, there you go. I could. That's a, that's a great. That's a great idea. Um, why? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> why don't we do a crowdsourced double loop podcast survey? We should get questions from the audience. That, hey, if you're going to talk to potential jurors, why don't we ask them about this? That's a great idea because. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And, and and we get paid for. It. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, you pushed it too far, Glenn. You pushed it too I know, far. I know. Um, here's the thing. I, uh, I know going into it, what result Henry wants this paper to be. Ah, now that's the, what we didn't talk about was the motivation behind the paper. So when he writes the question in the way that gets the answer that he's looking for, it makes me kind of, I, I bet that the Army Crime Lab wording could be tweaked into a way where uh, the public would give similar results to this study or in a way that would totally justify those that wording as as uh, not overstating the case. And I bet you that word identification could be phrased, it could be included in the phrasing in a way where you didn't get this 71%. You got a much lower um, uh, effect, but you kept the word identification. Uh, and I understand that this is just a preliminary study. This is, you know, fairly small scale. It's just two uh, questions with each with two answers. But I, I guess well, I'm not getting a whole lot out of this when you could just tweak little things and get totally different answers. Okay. So one thing I, I think to be fair to Henry, we don't actually know when the study was conducted. So did he do it before they went on this mission to change their testimony, which you know, is fairly recent times, what, a year and a half, maybe two years ago? Two or so, two and a half. So was this prior to that, and this was that exploratory, and then they said, see, we probably should change, or was this we changed, and then we're going to prove after the fact, see why this was important? So I don't actually know that. I, I really don't. I don't know if you have any insight, but I, I don't know when the, the study was conducted. second, but I, you're right, I don't know. Okay. Well, that's something we could reach out to Henry and ask. Yes. Yeah, I guess to summarize you know, my thoughts, I'm not putting a whole lot of weight in this. It's not really surprising given the phrasing of the questions. I, I see this as having some limitations, and I think jurors in a actual trial, not just potential jurors that are clicking on a website to get three bucks for spending you know two minutes of their time, like what um, Alicia was talking about, uh, that that's a, it's quite a different scenario and they're going to put into context all the information in the case and the way that this conclusion is phrased isn't going to be the deciding factor in how this all plays yeah. out. 
Now, that that was going to be my summary point was I don't actually, after the last few weeks and the people we've been talking to and the papers I've been reading and just my own where things have been going, I actually don't think it matters. I don't think it matters one iota how we phrase this. I honestly believe, as, as Alicia said, it's about this narrative. It's about this story. It's about the context. It's what I keep hearing over and over and over. It's the common theme throughout all of this is that You've told me something, a bit of information, that it's his print. But this doesn't necessarily equate to guilt. And that's ultimately what they're trying to decide. That whether they think it's his print or it could be someone else, like, oh, that doesn't really matter. Ultimately, will they decide guilt? It it doesn't necessarily come down to whether or not they believe it's his to the exclusion of all others. Exactly. I'm, I'm convinced of that now. I haven't seen any evidence that um, an alternative phraseology is going to reduce the uh, jurors' confusion on um, on a subject. I think they're just going to slightly confuse and slightly misinterpret things because they're not experts. They're the triers of fact. And I, that, that's just the system. I, you know, there there isn't a way around... The jurors just not quite getting everything perfectly. They're going to um, misassign the statistics, no matter how we present it. Okay. Well, so yeah, next moving, article. Moving to the second paper. Yeah. All right. So the second paper was published in Journal of Forensic Science, and it's was published in 2018. And it is from Brandon Garrett. Uh, he's a law professor. He's written other articles about uh, the effectiveness of uh, Fry or Daubert admissibility challenges. He's published some things on um, Innocence Project data and uh, erroneous convictions based on forensic science. He's, looked, he's, he's done a lot of deep dive studies on, on uh, forensic science and, and, and uh, decisions and case decisions. Uh, Gregory Mitchell and Nicholas Skurich are also named as authors in this paper. The title of the paper is Comparing Categorical and Probabilistic Fingerprint Evidence. So this paper does the classic, we're going to give them some categorical conclusions, and the categorical conclusions they used were simple match and strong match, and then attempted to also use numbers where they gave effectively likelihood ratios of a million, hundred thousand, ten thousand, thousand, one hundred and ten, and they wanted to see how this would affect jurors' decision making. Now, here's the most important point, and this goes right back to the last paper, which is why it's a good segue. Is ultimately the question that they're looking at was whether or not they would convict someone based on how the fingerprint evidence was presented. It was basically convict, yes, I would convict him, no, I would not convict him. And so they had a control group. So, good. good. <laughs> yes. Basically, with, with no information, would you, would you convict this individual? And uh, it, uh, basically, 79-23 were the, you know, their, their results. So, broke down roughly 80-20. So, 20% of the folks would not or would convict ba- basically without any real information. The, the, the control group were just told that an assailant came into a store with a gun uh, dropped the gun when exiting the store, uh, was arrested shortly after the crime, but they didn't find any money on the person, and the person was wearing a mask, so the clerk couldn't identify him. Right. 
Th- this would you the, convict him? I mean, that's, that's right. it. That's, like the, right. that's the only information you get. Right. This is the 20% of, well, if the police are presenting him as a suspect, they must have a good reason to think it. And that's, <laughs> that is right. your baseline. It's 20, one in five people think oh, the police probably got the right guy from, from whatever information. And then once they introduce the fingerprint evidence as a simple match or a strong match or some sort of statistic, those numbers shifted dramatically. In all cases, it went higher than uh, basically 50, at least 50 percent. So the majority would have convicted when given fingerprint evidence either as a statistic or a categorical conclusion with one exception, which was the weakest of the the statistics treated that nearly 50-50. But certainly the addition of a fingerprint increased. And and so then the authors really looked at um, how, how jurors changed their rate of conviction based on simple match or strong match and then compared that to the various numbers. So I think it's important to, to clarify what simple match and strong match mean. Mm-hmm. Um, simple match, the wording was uh, the examiner's conclusion was that um on uh, to the to the gun that was dropped at the scene um the fingerprint was individualized as the right thumb of the defendant that's the simple match and the strong match was the same phrase the fingerprint was individualized as the right thumb of the defendant and it's a practical impossibility that the prints came from a different source right. so that was the difference between simple and strong match and then instead of that the probabilistic language was um, the probability of observing this amount of correspondence is approximately insert number here a million times greater when impressions are made by the same source rather than by different sources Uh, this conclusion was reached using software that measures the degree of similarity between fingerprint impressions Mm -hmm. perfect so the the summary of the most important graph on there, what we would say is figure one, if anyone wants a copy of the paper. When you look at it, you realize that these numbers, whether it's a simple match, strong match, a million to one, a thousand to one, whatever, they're all roughly about the same. In other words, I mean, there is a bit of a difference between simple and strong match. That was probably one of the stronger differences. So clearly by adding that additional little phrase phraseology to it, there was a slightly higher conviction rate, a noticeable, noticeable effect. But then when it came to the numbers, they were fairly – it didn't matter if it was a million to one or a hundred thousand to one. They really didn't parse those out. They were all kind of in the same ballpark, meaning that when you added the fingerprint, they understood some basic distinctions between the highest and the lowest categories, strong and simple, or a million to one versus ten to one. They understood those those those, if you will, right. vast differences, but the subtle difference between a million and a hundred thousand or ten thousand, not a huge difference. And a million and ten thousand were in the same ballpark as a strong or simple match, really, well, and in, in in the neighborhood. They're they're all pretty close, and right. I mean, even simple match, million times and a hundred times are all basically the same. Um, yeah, ten drops way off, but a hundred is the same as a million. Yeah, you know, it's the exactly. same like the same numbers. Right. Um, at like fifty three percent convicting, um, simple at fifty one, and then strong just at sixty. So it's it's yeah. not all that different. Um, and I don't know about you, but I was really surprised that 
those the numbers were that for conviction were that low. I mean, that's maybe. the thing that didn't surprise me. No? That was it. No, because that's exactly that's exactly it. Um, when I when I saw this, I went here. It is again. It's this narrative. The narrative is missing. They have a oh, little bit of the story. It's just pure data, dry without a story. So that's right. like, eh, right? I don't Does know. Send person... the guy away for ten years. Nah, it's right. not, no. Does this story. person live in the neighborhood? Does he have other things? Is he acting sketchy? Was there an eyewitness that reckoned? Without the story of tying it all together, it's just a fingerprint on this, and. It, it you can see them in the data. It's like well, yeah, probably you'd see some com- going towards the conviction, but it, it wasn't like you said expecting a slam dunk that you've got this person's fingerprint on a gun in an armed robbery because the narrative is missing. So that that's why I wasn't that that's why I was so pleased to see this. It just that makes it sense. Hit, it hit home again. Yeah, and and. This goes to your point on the last paper. It doesn't matter how the, how they expressed <laughs> it. It doesn't matter at all because they all again they're going to take that information and then they're going to weave it into the other aspects of the case. And without that, doesn't matter. When we did that uh, live jury thing that I've referenced now a few times, yeah. As soon as we were done, <laughs> as soon as we were done, and we let the jurors ask questions. Not one of them asked questions about the fingerprint evidence. They all asked about the narrative. It was the guy right-handed or left-handed. Did he actually have a limp? Does he actually have that jacket? Did the police look at this? Did they actually go? That was all they cared about was right. the narrative and none of the fingerprint evidence we just spent three hours presenting to them. In the long run, I, I, I want Henry to keep doing what he's doing and pushing the use of the statistical model, I, I want it a lot more research before it's presented to, you know, a, a, actually as, as, you know, information in a report. But I, I want that because I want to add it to my current phraseology of saying identification. But leaving that behind, you're right. I, I mean, I don't think it's going to matter in the long run. And, you know, Henry might argue, well, if it doesn't matter, then let's just do it because it's it's more technically right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's exactly his point. And I don't I don't disagree with that element of it. Again, I, I would actually the, the, I want it when the when the defense asks the question and how many other people would be expected to share these characteristics. I want to be able to answer that. I want to be able to actually have an estimate to that answer. But an accurate estimate, I think, is important. Um, like you, fair. that's like, fair. You know, and I'm not. I don't know that anything has been demonstrated to produce an accurate estimate at this point. Yeah, and Henry's model doesn't do that because of the score-based approach that he's got. It, it won't estimate how many other people could be expected to share these characteristics. It, it, it doesn't do that. Henry right. thing produces a score that's essentially a degree of similarity compared to other individuals, but it's it. It's not an, it's not some sort of frequency estimator. I know, and it's it operates very much like an APHIS system, but obviously a, a rudimentary one. That uh, because the the super advanced you know awesome find anything matchers are proprietary and <laughs> sold for millions of dollars, and and not just you know what forensic scientists can come up with um, yeah. in the, in their own lab, you know. Um, I, I'm really, you know, 
proud of, of Henry for pushing something forward on it, but uh, I don't know. Gotta, um, gotta start somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I just want the number without losing my identification. Um, hmm. Because I think that both is a better, more accurate way of stating it um, and more helpful way of stating it than uh, ditching my opinion, which every other expert in court gets to have. So the the conclusion of the study is that, and I'm just going to read it here because yeah. I think it, it's, it summarizes it nicely. Study demonstrates that jury-eligible adults can make distinctions among fingerprint evidence presented in probabilistic terms and will place as much weight on high-probability match evidence as categorical match evidence. In other words, they adjusted their decisions when presented with, you know, um, I, some sort of match, either as a statistic or a categorical evidence. The results provide some support for the move toward assigning probabilities to forensic identifications, and and here's where I, I understand you'll take your exception, and for a move away from categorical conclusions that may mask the degree of uncertainty attached to an identification opinion. And your point is you don't actually have to move away from that. You could present both. Why not, why not both? Yeah. That they, the authors didn't consider that as a third option, having both there. That be, Because they seem to understand probabilities and put the same weight as categorical then you don't need categorical i think your point is well you could have both then in this as in much else in life the best answer is most often in the middle when there are these these polar opposite opinions on things um most times the the best solution is somewhere in the middle and not at the extreme of, of either end everything in moderation um except wine right mm. yeah. right all right and, and so uh, ultimately they say that jurors did not discriminate among any but the highest and lowest probability evidence in other, in other words the 10 to 1 and the million to 1 they got the distinction but once you get to a million to 100,000 to 1 half a million to 1 10 to whatever that's all the same to them. They're just big numbers. They don't make any distinction. And looking at the data, uh, yeah, it's slight. But like I said, a million and a hundred were the same. Granted, yeah. ten and a thousand were lower, and there is some noise in there. So yeah. there is a slight, slight, you know, change. But man, it, it's all the numbers are basically. You could also say that all the numbers are basically the same. Yeah, that's that's fair. Other than there was a statistical significance between the highest and lowest, but just barely. Right. Um, all right. So um, a couple things as we close out this episode. Uh, first, um, it seems like we're getting a whole lot of new listeners. So I want to put the invitation out there uh, to non-latent print examiners. Uh, whether you be forensic scientists that have come across this show um, because we talk about sometimes other stuff besides latent prints, um, whether it be jury stuff or Kevin Bacon, uh, Kevin Bacon or making a murderer stuff or um, ANAB and Ash Cloud Lab stuff, um, or whether you be just uh, the amateur sleuth out there that's just interested in forensic science in general, but uh, you're not actually in the profession. We want to hear from you. Um, Glenn and I are, are you know, looking to, to expand the show, and we're especially looking for ideas from, um, 
from our non-traditional listeners, shall we say. You know, we've got plans for to interview more guests, but um, just kind of want to hear, you know, did, and, you know, are you really hoping that we cover another case like making a murderer and, and go in depth on that like we did for that in OJ? Um, or, you know, do you, do, you, do you also get something out of the in-depth technical minutiae of, of our discipline? Um, not that we're forgetting all you latent print people out there, but uh, it does seem that we're getting a, a broader audience to some degree. And we want to hear from, uh, from that broader audience to see uh, you know, what you may want um, out of uh, different aspects of the show. And maybe that can help us improve by mixing things up and, and, uh, and, and having more of a variety uh, you know, than we have had in the past. Anything to add on, Glenn, here? What you want to, to hear from the people? Well, uh, I, I I fully support what you're you're pitching here. Is that you're right? I mean, there are only so many times we can talk about the exclusion of all others. Only so many times <laughs> we can talk about sweet fast standards and and you know statistical models. And no, I would if I, I was I think a listener, that's an infinite I, number of times. We can, I can keep <laughs> talking about it forever. Go ahead. Right. If I was a listener, I would probably be a little bit sick of hearing about statistical models. So. It, I think it would be good to branch out into some great case studies, some things we're unaware of. And, the, and I think listeners should stay tuned that we've got some ideas rolling in. And you're going to start to see maybe even some folks from outside of even yeah. the fingerprint community or even forensic community. We've got, some, we've got some interesting shows that are going to be lined up. So we want to keep this entertaining, but also, you know, we recognize our core people, but we, sh- we should be branching out. So we're, we're open to ideas from listeners. So yeah, please please let us know. Even you know, even if it's just kind of a a you know a, an attendance thing of, hey, I started listening at this point. I'm not an expert in your field, but I liked this episode in particular because of this. Or even if you don't have time for all that and just want to say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I listen, and then that's it. Um, we just kind of want to take a a, a um, an unofficial poll of who's listening and where you guys are from and and what brought you to the show or as much as you can share about uh, about yourself. Um, so um, you know, please send those emails in to Eric at rayforensics.com uh, or to Glenn G L E N N at eliteforensicservices.com, and um, we look forward to hearing from you. Um, so n- now that we're kind of back into the swing of things, we've done more or less a, a regular show here. Um, I wanted to, to follow up. Um, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of get the feeling that, that people, have, uh, you know, kind of have questions. This is more for people in the latent print community I have questions. I, last year I stepped back from OSAC. I, um, didn't go to the conference. I did. Yes. Um, I didn't go to the conference. I, um, um, I, I really kind of pulled back on, on lots of interactions and, um, last year was definitely a tough year for me. It put me in a, in a bad place. So, um, anytime something latent print related came up for me to do, especially with, with OSAC and, and things in the greater community, I kind of just locked up and, and mentally shut down and I couldn't accomplish anything. I couldn't write anything or read anything or, um, or contribute anything. Um, and after a few months of that, um, 
especially with OSAC. I just thought it was really unfair to the OSAC group to be a member and be expected to contribute and just not be able to. To to just feel this kind of weight come down on me that uh, anytime I tried to open up a document and start reading through and, you know, contributing to being on OSAC. Um, so I, I withdrew, like I said, because I didn't think it was fair to the rest of the group of, of how little I was getting done. Um, in that time, I've, I've, I think I've, um, I've healed a little bit. I've started to come out a bit and I, I think I've started to, you know, make things better for myself. I feel a little better. Um, I've, I've sent out, uh, email to inquire about getting more back involved. I, I do hope to be still not definite at the conference this year in San Antonio, um, and I hope at some point soon to be back on OSAC, back involved with, uh, with other projects wherever, um, I'll be accepted and be, you know, back again to a productive and interactive member of the, the broader latent print community. So, uh, if I haven't talked to you for a while, I'm sorry. Um, that's, this is all part of the same issues that I had last year. I look forward to seeing all my latent print friends again here very soon and being back at full hia strength. Uh, so, um, anyway, that's, that's kind of the story of, of me for the past year. And, um, I guess I'll, uh, leave it at that and close out the show. Hey man, that's, uh, that's life. And, I absolve you, 10 Hail Marys, 10 Our Fathers, and uh, go on your way, my son. Ah, uh, yes, the, the cap, Catholic absolution. That's, it feels good. <laughs> it feels good, Glenn. Yeah, there you go. Got to get it off your chest. Yeah. So, um, anyway, thank you guys all. Uh, listen for us every week on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Our opinions are our own and not those of any agency. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you and talking with you soon. And thank you guys all for, for supporting the podcast over the years and, um, and, and being a part of it as, as just listeners. So I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.